Castillo. I don't know if you've seen the Burger King video around net neutrality yet. No, I haven't, but I'm going to look that up. Definitely look that up because it provides the opportunity for everyday people and business owners and people who who think that they're um, that this issue doesn't affect them to seriously consider what it, what it would feel like and what it would mean if you had to negotiate the price of something you need every day um, and the only access you can have to it is based on how much you can pay for it. Um, especially something like the internet. You know, we, we're used to hopping on Google and searching for the, the YouTube video and the different things that we want access to without thinking twice about it. Those of us that have access to the internet, let me add that caveat because in Detroit, 40% of the population doesn't. But those of us who have access to the internet, um, who are able to just jump on our computers and do those things, that, that's a, it's a very real threat. Um, and so, um, yeah, so we're hoping that uh, those folks that are, that are silent in government that have not gotten on the right side of history on this issue will start to see how much of a priority it really is. Welcome to the Fragmented Whole. I'm your host, Amarachi, and I'm honored to bring this weekly podcast series to you. The narrator that opened this week's episode was Tawana Petty, the Data Justice Coordinator of the Detroit Community Technology Project. Tawana is one of three co-hosts that will enrich our understanding of net neutrality and more importantly, what tangible and intangible resources communities are employing to mobilize against this repeal. Before we jump into the heart of this week's conversation, I'm sure some of you are curious to know how a Burger King commercial could provide education on net neutrality. No need to wait any further. Let's take a listen. Got a number one. Hey, how you doing? Do you know what number 98, what's going on with it? Number 98, uh, you got the Whopper? Yeah. So you got the slow access Whopper pass? Wait, what? It's on the menu right there with the fast, medium, and slow. Slow MBPS, fast MBPS, or hyper fast MBPS. MBPS, of course, standing for making burgers per second. So if we want a Whopper now, we have to pay $26? Well, that's, that's how you get it fast. That's the highest priority. This is like a lane system? Maybe like 15, yeah, fast lane, slow lane. So like maybe like 15, 20 minutes. What are you talking about? Burger King Corporation believes that they can sell more and make more money selling like chicken sandwiches and chicken fries. So now they're slowing down the access to the Whopper. Were you given an option of a chicken sandwich or? Yeah, yeah, I don't want a chicken sandwich, Robert. I want a Whopper. Do you have any Whoppers ready that aren't? Yeah. The sandwich is ready. I'm just not allowed to actually get it to you. What? You can't give me the sandwich? It's ready, but you can't give it to me? The Whopper neutrality was repealed. They voted on it. Whopper what? This doesn't make any sense. Fortunately, I have no other choice. Oh, my God. This is the worst thing I've ever heard of. See, like, he got the fast, and now he's getting, getting his Are you kidding me? You paid $26 for a Whopper? Yeah, he ordered it. Now he's a higher priority, so... If, Come on, guys. Like, I want a burger, man. If you'd like... If this you, is a bad dream right now. I just want Burger, brother, a burger! You want to pay me? You want to pay me? I feel like I'm going to pay This is crazy. Here's what I'll do. You have the bag, and I can put it in the bag in 42 seconds. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, seconds. We don't make the rules. You just enforce these ridiculous rules? Fortunately, we have to. 
because, come on. I feel like I was being taken advantage of, in a sense. Just as a customer coming in to get their food, it felt like a power move. They already changed the policies overnight or whatever. Um, I didn't think that a Whopper, ordering a Whopper would really open my eyes up to net neutrality. The Whopper actually taught me about net neutrality. It's stupid, but true. Look, I'm not gonna lie. If I was craving a Whopper and my access to it was prolonged by MVPs and I had to pay $26 for a hot and quickly made Whopper, shoot, I'd be pretty PO'd. With that said, for those of you that aren't the most tech savvy and or not the most hip on tech lingo, myself included, I've got one more example on what net neutrality is and how it works from the New York Times. Net neutrality rules classify high-speed internet as a public utility. The goal is to ensure consumers have open and equal access to all content on the internet. Here's how it works. When you download content from the internet, it arrives in packets of data. Think of the packets as literal packages. Let's say you want to watch a Netflix movie, which is 10 packages big. First you order, but before Netflix ships, those packages have to go through a sorting facility. In this analogy, that's an internet service provider, like Verizon or Comcast. Now what net neutrality means is that all packages must be delivered at the same rate. And currently, there are FCC rules in place to make sure that happens. So now that we've got a general basis of what net neutrality is, there's no better time to introduce our first co-host, Yosef, a public policy fellow at Public Knowledge. Public Knowledge is a consumer advocacy organization focused on advancing policy related to an open internet, freedom of expression, and access to affordable communication tools. I give ownership of this week's narrative to those grounded in digital justice and equity daily. And I'm pleased to share my co-host's expertise and insight with you all. Last year, on December 14th, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, FCC, voted to repeal the 2015 net neutrality regulatory laws established during the Obama administration. I began my conversation with Yosef, curious about what guidelines the 2015 regulatory plan laid out for ISPs. By the way, ISPs are internet service providers like AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, and many more. Take it away, Yosef. 2015, the FCC decided to use their authority under Title II of the Communications Act to put together some bright line rules that ISPs have to follow when it comes to internet traffic. Uh, so the three rules were no blocking, no throttling, and no paid prioritization. So what, like we talked about, uh, the FCC has said, ISPs, you can't block your customers from accessing any website. ISPs, you can't throttle your customers uh, and their uh, speeds to certain websites. So every website needs to be able to download the exact same speed. And paid prioritization, this gets into um, certain situations where uh, a website could enter an, into an agreement with an ISP to pay them a certain fee to give them a fast lane on their network. And so this gets into uh, creating fast lanes and slow lanes where, uh, say for example, uh, Facebook entered into an agreement with uh, Comcast and said, I want you to uh, make my network or my website load a lot faster than uh, 
Google or Amazon or any other type of website. And they cut a deal with the IFT. So all of a sudden, Facebook loads much faster and competing services load a lot slower. The FCC said, no, this is not allowed. Every website needs to be treated equally. You can't enter into any agreements to uh, speed up certain websites for more money. And so what the FCC was saying is, with these bright line rules, we want to give consumers the ultimate choice for what they want to do, what they want to see online, and how they want to interact online. It's all about giving consumers ultimate control and not leaving it up to uh, one ISP and a service provider to tell them where they can and cannot go. FCC Chairman and Anti-Net Neutrality Campaigner Ajit Pai has argued that the 2015 Title II Regulatory Plan was based on, quote, hypothetical harms and hysterical prophecies of doom, unquote. In April of last year, prior to the ultimate repeal, Pai sat down with journalist William Brangham on PBS NewsHour. In the following clip, Brangham asked Pi about how ISPs would be regulated from blocking or throttling if net neutrality were to be repealed. Let's take a listen to his response. One of the issues here is whether or not we treat broadband like a utility. And if it's treated like a utility, the requirement is that you as the provider are not allowed to put your finger on the scale and slow one person down or speed somebody else up. And I just want to pose a hypothetical to you. Sure. Let's just say Comcast created a new TV series. And it just so happened that that competed with a Netflix series very similarly. If these rules go away, how is, the, how is there not an incredible incentive for Comcast to slow Netflix down coming into my house and make their video, the Comcast video, very robust? So under that hypothetical, one of the things that's important to remember is that it is a hypothetical, that we don't see evidence of that happening in the marketplace on a widespread level. There but have been some examples of ISPs blocking certain things. The Google Wallet was blocked, uh, Skype was blocked, uh, One Canadian Telecom blocked uh, pro-labor sites. I mean, there, it's not like this doesn't happen. Well, there are isolated cases, but if you look at the FCC's own record, there are only scattered anecdotes to support this. And the argument I've made is that uh, in order to justify preemptive regulation of all 4,462 internet service providers, you should have pretty concrete evidence of an overwhelming market failure. Uh, but secondly, the other argument I would make is that the hypothetical is a classic question of competition and consumer protection law. So you would feel comfortable telling consumers you can trust the Comcast, the AT&Ts, the Verizons to not do that, to not put their finger on the scale and promote their stuff at the expense of someone else's. Not at all. I would say as a government regulator that we don't put faith in any single particular sector of the economy or particular company. We put our faith in the rule of law. And the rule of law, which includes antitrust law and consumer protection law, is faithfully administered by uh, the federal government agencies and state agencies that are charged uh, with uh, executing that law. Hmm. Pi's commentary about, quote, hypothetical, unquote, and, quote, isolated cases, unquote, compelled me to ask Yosef about if and to what extent ISPs were altering digital access prior to the 2015 Title II regulatory plan. And Yosef had plenty of anecdotes to share. Prior to these rules that were in place in 2015, there's been a history of ISPs uh, violating net neutrality principles and discriminating uh, traffic online. 
there's actually been a common theme of uh, ISPs where they've favored their own services uh, as opposed to competing services. And uh, the list of violations just goes down the line. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, um, we can go back to 2005 uh, where there was an ISP called Madison River. Uh, it's based out in North Carolina. And uh, there was a uh, competing service online called Vonage, which a lot of people know it's a voice over IT service provider. So it's, it's providing you with uh, communication services online, similar to Skype and other services like that. Uh, what Madison River did was offer a competing service to Vonage, and they didn't like Vonage so, because it was taking up a lot of uh, customers, so they decided to block Vonage uh, in favor of its own service. Uh, and what the FCC did was investigate this. Uh, they found that uh, this was a, a violation of a, a clear rule of, of no blocking. Uh, and they uh, fined Madison River about $15,000 and told them, hey, you can't block a uh, competing uh, service from accessing customers on your um, uh, broadband service. Um, another example uh, is AT&T uh, blocking Skype. Uh, in favor of its own type of service. This was um, in 2007, 2008 time. Uh, and the, the common theme here is that when ISPs look at uh, competing services, uh, they, they have a, this fear that uh, they're, they're going to lose their uh, customers to competing services, and they want to use their gatekeeper power to try and block or throttle customers' access to that to prioritize their own content. Despite the FCC ultimately repealing the 2015 net neutrality regulations, members of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives have been agentic and employing strategies to repeal the repeal of net neutrality regulations. One such strategy members of Congress are taking is the proposal of a Congressional Review Act, also known as a CRA. I'll pass the baton to Yosef to explain what exactly a CRA entails. There was a lot of public outcry when uh, Chairman Pai decided to repeal the net neutrality rules uh, late last year. And several members of Congress had taken notice of this outcry and were also equally upset. So they decided to enter into talks to introduce a CRA to repeal the FCC's repeal. So what that essentially means is they want to introduce the CRA to repeal Chairman Pai's plan and take us back to the framework we had in 2015 that was incredibly popular. So there's a lot of uh, uh, technicalities when it comes to when the CRA can be introduced. There's uh, a two-factor test where the FCC must submit a report to Congress of its rulemaking, which they recently did. And there's another factor where uh, the rules or the, the repeal of the rules needs to get published in the Federal Register. This affects the timing of when a CRA can be officially introduced, but this hasn't stopped members of Congress from actually announcing they will introduce a CRA and starting to get co-sponsors and support for a CRA. With that said, like many of you may or may not be wondering, I wanted to know what specific acts were being taken by members of Congress to gain support for the CRA and factors that may impact the timeline from which the act can be introduced. From the Senate side, uh, we have Senator Markey, who is a senator from Massachusetts, who already announced he's doing a CRA, and he's, he's been able to get about 
49 other senators to say they will support the CRA when he uh, introduces it, uh, which is major because uh, one of the senators who, who said they would support the CRA is a Republican. So we've seen some bipartisan support on this side. On the House side, uh, uh, Congressman Doyle, who is on the Energy and Commerce Committee, had also said he would introduce the CRA. And I think up, up until now, we have about 130 members of, uh, in the House saying they would support uh, CRA. So it's going to be a long process uh, given the timing of when uh, they can introduce this and how fast this can get uh, moved through the Congress. But what we've seen is that there's been significant support from both sides so far, and there's just an urgency to get the rules that we had back on the books. It's, it's going to take a few months, uh, given the process of when they can introduce it uh, and how quickly they can move it uh, to the floor. Uh, each, the Senate and the House operate a bit differently, so there's a, a fast-track mechanism in the Senate side um, where if they have 30 uh, members co-sponsoring it, they can actually fast-track it to a floor vote and um, avoid any type of filibuster situation. Uh, and uh, on the House side, there isn't a similar fast-track fast situation, but they can also vote uh, to adopt it on a majority vote rather than uh, a two-thirds vote or anything, anything like that. So they need a simple majority. So again, it's, it's going to be a long process, but there's definitely significant interest from in both sides of Congress to get this thing done. In addition to shining a spotlight on acts taken by the federal government to repeal the repeal of the 2015 regulatory plan, states are issuing executive orders and bills that bypass the FCC repeal and presumption laws and require state agencies to only do business with ISPs that offer neutral networks. Yosef provided me additional insight on the significance of these acts by states. What we're seeing here is uh, another response to the public outcry of the FCC repealing the rules and essentially abandoning uh, any authority to protect consumers on uh, broadband networks. Uh, in this example, it's states stepping up. They see there's a major gap in protection, so they're deciding to use whatever authority they have to get some sort of net neutrality rules back on the books, at least on the state side. Uh, so this is something they can do through an executive order. It's something they've uh, done through New York, Montana, and a couple other states you mentioned. And it's just one way that states right now are trying to get uh, net neutrality rules uh, back on the books and protect consumers in any way they can. For those of you that live in states that have not initiated such acts or bills, I'm definitely looking out for you. Yosef provided suggestions on what acts you all can take to compel such legislative practices. So there's a lot of stories out there that people can share, and the best thing they can do is contact the representative, uh, both at the state and federal level, and explain to them what net neutrality means to them and why it's so important. Uh, a lot of times these members uh, hold town hall meetings, uh, especially uh, members of Congress. They go back to their districts all the time to talk to their constituents. And whenever they hear uh, questions from the audience about why did I lose my net neutrality protections, why don't I have good uh, internet service, they listen to that and they respond. And so it's really uh, uh, all about getting as much um, attention to these issues as possible and getting uh, members on the federal and state level to act. 
Here at The Fragmented Whole, we're all about agency and capacity building. And the second half of this episode is dedicated to shining a spotlight on a community-based organization that is doing just that in regards to the repeal of net neutrality. I'm more than pleased to introduce to you all the Detroit Community Technology Project, aka DCTP. You briefly met our second co-host, Tawana Petty, in the opening of this episode. The third and last co-host is Janice Gates, the program coordinator for the Equitable Internet Initiative. Both Tawana and Janice are coordinators from the Detroit Community Technology Project, aka DCTP. Led by women of color, DCTP is based in Detroit, Michigan. So, the history of the DCTP is quite layered. So, I'll leave it to Janice to give you a brief overview. Um, so, yeah, so in 2012, um, Allied Media Projects um, partnered with the Open Technology Institute and New America Foundation um, to create a digital stewards um, program, which is really a program that trains neighborhood leaders in designing and implementing um, community wireless networks. So they were kind of the first iteration of the digital stewards before um, the digital stewards that we have now. Um, And their work was really um, centered around um, putting into practice the Detroit digital justice principles. Really focused on emphasizing access, um, participation, community ownership, and um, healthy communities. And then a couple of years later, in 2014, um, the Digital Stewards Program led to the creation of the Detroit Community Technology Project. And this wow. project, right, I know it's a long history. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then the Detroit Community Technology um, Project, our work is really, um, focused on broadening um, community technology education, organizing work, and sharing um, best practices. And a lot of this education and best practices can be found in our um, Teaching Community Technology Handbook, um, of which there's a link on our website. As you all heard by my, ah, (laughs) DCTP is an umbrella organization that houses a number of initiatives that promote digital justice, data justice, capacity building, and community empowerment. Among their five initiatives, the programs most pertinent to this episode are the Equitable Internet Initiative and the Data Justice Research Initiative. Let's give the spotlight to Janice to learn more about the Equitable Internet Initiative. The Equitable Initiative, um, it was born out of our noticing um, of uneven distribution of internet access um, within the city of Detroit, and then looking at the widening um, digital divide that was happening where high-speed internet um, is being offered to um, people and businesses located in midtown and downtown Detroit, and then those um, in the cities don't have much access to internet are being left out with how this um, digital divide is supposed to happen. Um, we partnered with three anchor organizations um, in the city 
Um, and we partner with them because of our existing relationships and then because of the things that they were already doing um, within the community. And so we're working with um, Church of the Messiah and Boulevard Harambe um, in the Island View neighborhood, which is on the east side of Detroit. Um, the North End Woodward Community Coalition, which is located um, in the North End. And then Grace in Action, which is located in um, Southwest Detroit. Um, and we trained um, 15 um, what we call digital stewards in each neighborhood. And then we hired five students from each location to work on building out um, the community wireless network. Um, so they've been working since um, last July on installing, um, on hooking up 50 homes, on wiring up 50 homes with um, internet access. Um, and so they're, we completed um, phase one last year. Um, now we're moving into phase two where they're completing um, the installations. And then this year is really going to be focused on um, making the network sustainable. So each neighborhood um, is working on a business plan to make sure that the networks are um, sustainable um, after 2018. As a recap, the Equitable Internet Initiative promotes equitable wireless internet access within targeted Detroit communities by equipping digital stewards who are from the communities they work within with the necessary technical skills to equip homes with wireless broadband internet. As an extension of the Equitable Internet Initiative, the Data Justice Research Initiative promotes equitable access to digital information, particularly open data portals and data bodies. Prior to my conversation with Janice and Tawana, I had no idea what an open data portal was. I mean, I had engaged with it at my local public library, but I had no idea what the formal term for the system was. For those of you like me who don't know what an open data portal is, or maybe you don't know the technical term for it, I've got you covered. Tawana? Well, open data portal is a system that the city government uh, opened up and, and essentially if I'm and I'm guessing here but I believe is that they're in all 50 states um, and so if you're in your city and you want to look up an open data portal for Detroit then you're going to pull up you know data.detroitmichigan.gov and when you open up that portal you'll see things like uh, public safety property and parcels education transportation uh, public health, uh, and so it's basically the city's website that has um, a lot of resource information and a lot of uh, information around properties that may be available for purchase. Um, some instances, uh, people are utilizing these portals to report uh, light and different things like that. But for the most part, community members aren't privy to the portal as much as they should be, and so developers and different uh, folks that are more tech-savvy are utilizing oftentimes these portals to the detriment of those community members that don't have access to information. So now that we've got a gist of the lingo, let's learn how the Data Justice Research Initiative creatively engages communities to measure their engagement with open data portals and data bodies. We firmly believe that the experts 
are the community members, the people who are experiencing these systems firsthand. And so that's where we get our information from. So the first community research project um, was around the open data, Detroit open data portal. And as you might know, pretty much every city has an open data portal. But a lot of community members don't know that it exists. Um, and if they do know that it exists, they don't know how to utilize it. And so through our data discotheques, which are these technology fairs, uh, discotheque being sort of play on words that means discovering technology, um, our Detroit Digital Justice Coalition uh, gathered, uh, it, you know, it engaged with Detroiters around like how they're experiencing the open data portal. And in some instances, we taught um, community members how to utilize the open data portal and then ask them how are they experiencing it now that they have access to the system that is essentially taking data and utilizing it for decisions within their community. And so uh, through that interaction, we created a set of guidelines on how to steward equitable data, equitable open data, which ultimately ended up with a second part of our research, which is the, our data bodies project that is engaging community members on how they experience their data body. So what their digital footprint is, how that impacts them personally, as well as the things that happens within their neighborhood. How are you able to access water, food, housing based on your information? What information about you is being utilized to make decisions for your well-being? Or at the detriment of your well-being. And so we're into that second research project now, and we're, it's across three cities, um, and it's focused mostly on marginalized communities and seeing their perspective of how they're interacting with these different technologies and how it's impacting them. And so we're in that research project now, and we're going to release a national report on that um, sometime early this year, probably by March or April. The repeal of net neutrality is not stopping the DCTP from carrying out its mission and initiatives. In fact, it is only upping the states from which they mobilize communities to advocate and organize on their own behalf. It's not, I mean, it's content, like it's not a part of our um, curriculum, but it really does. Um, the repeal of net neutrality really has framed our our really has framed our work. Um, so I would say that the community networks that we're building, um, which also includes um, working to demystify the internet and what that means for people, um, we're training our stewards um, this week actually on privacy, um, security, and consent. Mm. Um, and they, in turn, are going to conduct some community um, workshops around those issues. So they're going to be teaching the residents in the community, specifically those um, that are part of the 50 homes on the, on the network. So we're going to be teaching them about um, those things. Um, we've also been talking to um, Internet service providers in other states um, just to make sure that our network, um, you know, that we're – we're in compliance with the laws and just to kind of get an idea of how um, they're doing things. We're, you know, focusing on those ISP providers that are, you know, also committed um, to practicing net neutrality. 
um, and being responsible with people's data. Um, we've included some of the language in the contract that we have with our partners. Um, yeah, and then most of it is just education. So we're really trying to educate, you know, our digital stewards um, and our partners and, you know, the people around these networks about net neutrality and what the repeal of that um, really means. One of the things that's very positive about our work is that we've, all, we've always been focused on equity and digital justice. So, you know, we've been pushing, um, along with everyone else that is uh, interested in, in justice around uh, Internet freedom, um, for folks to contact their legislators, for folks to sign the petitions. We're currently working on a blog that um, gives the current status of net neutrality and, you know, the legislature's and the uh, different uh, state representatives and things that we want folks to be calling in their districts. But we also are functioning in a way that um, that thinks about the protections of the Internet that our community members can take into their own hands. And so we're, we're having the conversation as if net neutrality um, is something that we are going to make a prevalent part of our work outside of what the government is going to do. And so the, the things that we're teaching are, um, of course, like Dana said, is how to function in a way that respects privacy, that respects um, Internet freedoms, that, you know, the ISPs that we're signing up with, we're, we're having them function in a way that as if net neutrality has not been repealed. And we're also functioning in a way that allows for the hope that is still within the process because a lot of people are for net neutrality and we're we're not we're not throwing our hands up. Um, this repeal, you know, in our eyes is temporary because we firmly believe that there are more people who believe in internet freedom than there are those uh, uh, partisan legislators that want to push for our freedoms to be taken from us. And so, like. Everyone is trained from the very grassroots up to um, to think about net neutrality as a backbone for how we're doing our work. Continued food for thought that will hopefully compel continued acts of reform and activism. I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode of The Fragmented Whole as we explore the tangible and intangible resources communities use to mobilize. We are now two weeks away from the first live audio recording of The Fragmented Whole, which will take place on Wednesday, February 28th at Blue Stockings Bookstore in Manhattan. The recording will take place from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Please join me as we view and discuss the 2016 documentary, Kanju, and expand our understanding of narrative framing, globalism, and nationalism. Shout out to Marshallese Jedi for the music used throughout this episode and Squarespace for the website design and assistance. I'd also like to reference the New York Times, Burger King, PBS NewsHour, the Detroit Community Technology Project, Futurism, and Public Knowledge for the content presented in this episode. This episode would not have been possible without my three co-hosts, Yosef, Janice, and Tawana. If you'd like to learn more about the Detroit Community Technology Project, you can visit their website at DetroitCommunityTech.org backslash. You can also follow them on Twitter at DET, D-E-T, 
com c-o-m-m tech t-e-c-h and facebook at community technology all of the toolkits reports and community resources mentioned in relation to detroit community technology project the equitable internet initiative and the data justice research initiative are free and available to the public on the official website if you'd like to learn more about public knowledge you can visit their official website knowledge.org and follow them on twitter at public knowledge be sure to follow the fragmented whole on facebook and instagram at the fragmented whole that is w-h-o-l-e and twitter at fragment underscore whole you can also find this info on the official website www.thefragmentedwhole.com you can follow me amarachi on ig at hella underscore chic chic not chick that is c-h-i-c and facebook at amarachi and Akronye. Tune in next Monday for the newest episode of The Fragmented Whole, where we piece together the news and self. Until next time, I'm Amarachi, a fragmented whole, and I'm signing out. Be safe, y'all.